couple months ago, I came home from work and my light, or not my light, my wife told me that our light in our kitchen had burned out. And so I went downstairs to one of our closets where I have a box of light bulbs because whoever built our house thought it'd be fun to have like every light bulb imaginable. So you have to be ready for whatever. And so anyway, I pulled out the light bulb that my kitchen, uh, you know, needed. And so I plugged it in and it didn't come on. And so I'm like, oh. So there's a couple things. It could be something else, or maybe I just bought one of those light bulbs that doesn't work. You know, there's something in it that is broken. So first thing I'm going to do is go to the store, buy another one of those lights, brought it back, plugged it in, hit the switch, nothing. I'm like, well, so it's bigger than that. I'm not a handyman, all right? I just don't know all those types of things. But my father-in-law was going to be coming to our house in about a week. So I'm like, I am going to ask him. We called him to make sure he could bring the tools necessary. And so he came. And when it was time to work on it, he pulled out these different things to figure out whether there was still electricity going to the light. And it's like, yep. So it probably is the ballast. And that's what I kind of wondered, but it wasn't for sure. So then we looked up as far as which ballast we would need to buy to be able to fit this exact fixture and everything. And so uh, we got that done. Eventually it came in, but we did have to wait a little while because we didn't want it to come in over Christmas break when we're not there. And so uh, time passed. Finally it came in. It's time to put it on. But I'm not 100% sure of everything that my father-in-law had told me about which wire was supposed to connect up. Like, I'm pretty sure, but you know, it's not one of those things you want to be pretty sure about. And so anyway, I then get on YouTube and look at a couple tutorials to make sure everything's good and make sure lights turned off. And so we, we uh, worked on it, put them, uh, connected the wires the way that I thought it was supposed to be. And I walked over to the light switch to turn it on and it turned on. Okay, if you're hoping sparks flew and my house burned down, it didn't happen, okay? Like it worked the way that it was supposed to, which made me really happy, except if I were to have to do that again, I can guarantee you I would need to go look at a couple instructions again, okay? Doing it a couple times, I probably would know exactly the things that I need to do, but there is a difference between knowing about something and knowing something. Like I would still kind of need to know those steps. What are the things that I need to do just to be confident enough to make sure that I got it done? Whereas my father-in-law, he has done it enough times. This is what you do in a situation like that. But that's not the only time when we, there's a difference between knowing about something and knowing something. Like a lot of you have taken tests or maybe at work you have done a presentation where you studied hard to be able to present something or you studied hard to be able to get a good grade on that test. But if I asked you two or three weeks later what was on the test or I asked you about that presentation, there's a chance that some of the information you might not know. Because again, you studied to be able to know it for that moment, but you don't really know it. It's more you know about it. But then there are certain things that, yep, You've absorbed in the classroom, you prepared, and you can tell all the in and outs about it because there is a difference between knowing about something and knowing something. And the same thing is even true with God, that we can know about Him. Like we can read, we can understand this is who God is, this is what He's done, but it's completely different to have a relationship with Him. To say, I see how He continues to work in my life, that I go and lean upon Him. And so there's a difference even between knowing about God and knowing God. And I tell you all those things because the passage that we're looking at today, if I'm being 100% honest with you, it's probably a passage that I knew a lot about, but I don't know if I ever really just knew it. Like I could tell you all sorts of things, like I've taught it before and I could tell you those aspects, but I don't know if I ever just put my feet into the disciples, uh, you know, kind of just from their angle and understanding just the impact of this. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Matthew chapter 17. 
because we're going to be reading about the transfiguration, to which one of my kids this week said, transfiguration, what does that mean? And even before I answered, they said, wait, you're probably going to cover it in the sermon. I said, you're right. So anyway, so that's what we're going to be looking at. Transfiguration is not a word probably use a whole lot, but we're going to see um, what Jesus wants us to know about this. And I'll even tell you, I hope that you see the encounter for what it is and that you're able to just simply be with Jesus as we go through the scripture. So we're starting at chapter 17, reading verse 1. Here's what Matthew writes. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, after six days. If you're to read Luke's account, he says after about eight days. Okay, about eight, six, it's not a contradiction. So both Matthew and Mark say six days. Okay, six days since what? Well, since what we studied last week, where Peter makes his confession that when Jesus says, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then this idea of he tells them that he is going to die. And Peter again steps up and says, never to where Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And then he teaches them about, if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself. You must take up your cross. You must follow me. So six days since that event is what we read about here. And says, Jesus takes three individuals, Peter, James, and John. And if you've been in church for a while, maybe you even have heard how these three are referred to kind of the inner three as far as the disciples, because you see these three with Jesus a few times when the other disciples aren't. So here at the transfiguration, you see them. You also see them in the garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is praying before he's about to be crucified, he has these three disciples go a little bit farther. You also see at the healing of Peter's mother-in-law, it says that Jesus took with him James and John. And I'm pretty sure Peter was probably there as well. And so you see the three there. And even a man named Jairus, who has a daughter who has passed away, when Jesus goes to heal her, to raise her from the dead, he takes three people inside with him, Peter, James, and John. And so I look at Jesus, and he taught the multitudes. And he had the 12 disciples, but then even he invested in these three a little bit more. And I think that's encouraging for us because not all relationships that you invest in have to be the same. Like it wasn't with Jesus. And so don't put that pressure on yourself that it has to look the same with everyone that you're investing in. In this text, it tells us that he went up on a high mountain. There's three different mountains that people think it might be. But what you know is that he's gone up on this mountain by themselves, or Mark says, all alone. Luke even says they go up on the mountain to be able to pray. And he adds in there, and the disciples, they're kind of sleepy. Okay, so you kind of know all that going into it. So that's what we've got. These three are following Jesus up the mountain. And so let's keep reading. Verse 2 says, There he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. All right, that word transfigured. In Greek, it is metamorpho. Okay, that kind of sounds like an English word we have, metamorphosis. That's actually where we get the word from, from this Greek word metamorpho, which means to change forms or to transform. So we use this word when we're thinking about like a caterpillar to a butterfly. There is a transformation that happens that you can see. And so that's what's going on here with Jesus is some sort of transformation. And so Matthew and Mark use this word about transfigured. Luke doesn't though. He tells it this way, that the appearance of his face altered. 
And so you might go, why did he choose a different word? Because of the people that he was writing to, he was very careful. He didn't want the connotation to connect with some of the gods that they worshiped. Some Greek gods or some magicians would actually transform into other beings. And so he didn't want to put Jesus on that same level. He wanted them to understand that Jesus is the God. He's not just one of the gods. And so in this instance, we see that Jesus changes. And then it says that his face shone like the sun. His clothes were white as the light. In fact, Mark describes it. He says, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Okay, Luke says, bright as a flash of lightning. So, I mean, I see these guys trying to describe it. What is the brightest thing that I can think of to be able to just help you understand what Jesus is like in this moment? So he's got these white robes at this moment that often represent splendor and majesty and the radiance of heavenly beings. So I'm going to tell you, Previously, as I read this passage, like I see this change in Jesus and I almost just see him glowing and this glory coming, you know, maybe the angels going, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And that's the way you see him kind of like, this is kind of cool. But man, as I read this, like Jesus changes, like he is not just in his human form anymore. There is the glory of God coming from him. And I can't describe it anymore because I wasn't there. But as I just sit here and think about that, this has to be an amazing time that the disciples are there seeing this. All right? So let's keep reading. Verse 3. It tells us that just then there appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Okay, so Moses and Elijah appear, and Luke even says they appeared in their glorious splendor, and it says they talked with Jesus, and they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay, so these two beings, Moses and Elijah, they're in front of Jesus, and so Moses representing the law, everything in the Old Testament's about the law. Here is Elijah, who represents all the prophets. So again, when you're looking at the past, Jesus represents all of them. You could also look at Moses being the one just to represent the past, but you can also look at Elijah as the forerunner, the one who was to come before the Messiah. And so here again, you see Jesus representing everything of the past and everything of the future. He is the one that fulfills, and he is the one that will fill the, uh, the hope that is to come. You know what? If you were to stand there and look at those three, it's in- interesting as well, because they all had an odd ending to their life. If you don't know it, when Moses died, God buried him. Elijah never experienced death. He goes up in a whirlwind up into heaven. And Jesus, though he dies, he rises from the dead and then ascends into heaven as well. And all three of these men, they were rejected by people, but they were vindicated by God. And so Jesus is there talking with Moses and Elijah. And it says they talked about his departure. The word that's actually used there is exodus. They talked about his exodus. And boy, does that bring a picture of Egyptian bondage an Israelite freedom, and a Passover lamb. And in just a few months, Jesus would become the Passover lamb so that we might experience our freedom. One thing I'd never really thought about, but one of the commentators kind of mentioned it, is I wonder how they knew it was Moses and Elijah. Like, you know, are they wearing name tags? Like, do they talk to one another? Hey, Moses, hey, Elijah, you know? Do they just talk about their ministry and so they're able to pick it up? You know, it's probably not like, hey, this is like the picture in our Bible, you know, that we were in Sunday school. Like, I don't really know. Doesn't really matter. But at some point, they're able to understand this is Moses and Elijah. This is a big deal. And so up on a mountain, you have these three disciples, the inner three. You have Jesus being transfigured along with the glory of Moses and Elijah standing there as well. And so... Let's see what keeps happening in verse 4. 
It says, Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If you wish, I will put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. So we have Peter speaking up again, all right? And so not necessarily a bad thing, but he's like, man, this is an amazing moment. I don't want it to stop. And through context of other things, we can assume that this probably happened in the evening. And so he's like, Let's, let me build these shelters so that we can stay here overnight. I'll build one for you and for him and for him. And so this idea of this little booth, this little tent, this little lean-to so that we could stay during the night. But Jesus doesn't even get a chance to answer him. Why? Well, let's look at verse 5. It says, while he was still speaking, a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Listen to him. So the reason that Jesus doesn't even get a chance to answer is because the Father appears in a presence, in a physical kind of visual presence that you can see in this cloud. And I'll tell you that you hear these words that we heard back at Jesus' baptism. This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. But this time, he adds, listen to him. But I just mentioned the cloud. There are so many other times that we see God appear in the cloud. Like back in Israel, this pillar of cloud led them through the desert after they had escaped from Egypt. You see God appearing in his Shekinah glory on the top of the mountain when Moses goes up to get the Ten Commandments and all the instructions. Like God is present in this cloud You see, when Solomon dedicates the temple that has been built for God, God shows up in this cloud full of glory. And even in the future, we read about how the Son of Man will come back on the clouds. He will come on the clouds. And so there's idea that God appears in clouds quite often, and so we see him here. And just reading this, can you imagine what it would be like to be one of those three disciples? Like first, you've just gone up with Jesus, and now he's in a figure that is not just his man-made self. He is now, or you're now seeing Moses and Elijah, which were like these top dogs that you would have just been like, man, we are so impressed with them, learning from them just to be in their presence. And now all of a sudden, you are hearing the voice of God. Because again, remember, this would be their first time. They weren't at the baptism to hear that at this point. So can you just imagine what they are experiencing as they are with Jesus? Like, maybe I hope you can understand that this is just more than a story. Like, the events are pretty amazing. So let's keep reading in verses 6 through 8. Said, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground, terrified. But Jesus came and touched them. Get up, he said. Don't be afraid. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. All right, so the disciples, they're scared And rightly so. I mean, if you were there, there's probably some scaredness that you would be having, maybe that terrified feeling as well. And Jesus then comes up and says, don't be afraid. A message that many angelic beings told to humans when they began their conversation with them. So here we now have Elijah and Moses are no longer there. So I don't know if the disciples are kind of thinking, well, where'd they go? I don't know if they're still kind of in shock I don't know if they're like, man, it is really good to be part of the inner three to be able to see things like this. I don't know if there's a point of like, okay, like things have gotten really just like, I saw Jesus this way. I would much rather trade with one of the other disciples. You know, they can be one of the inner three and like, I don't have to go through some of these things anymore. I don't know what's going through their mind, but I bet you they're just kind of taking it all in. And then Jesus gives them some instructions. Look at verse nine. It says, (laughs) as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus instructed them, 
Don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. Okay, everything that you've just seen, don't tell anyone yet. You know what? We've seen Jesus tell people that before. Hey, stay silent. Don't tell people what's going on. This is the last time he will do that. Okay, from now on, like everything that happens in his ministry, let's let everyone know this. You know, I am the Messiah. But at this point, he says, keep this quiet. But he does give a parameter. Until, until I have raised from the dead, then you can tell all about this. And I wonder how hard that was for the disciples. Like, I mean, I don't know how good you are at keeping secrets. Like, maybe it depends. Is it a big secret? Is it a little secret? But like, even in this instance, you have Peter, like, having his brother Andrew, and he can't tell him everything that he just saw, that Jesus was in his glory. You know, I wonder about some of those arguments about who's the greatest disciple. I mean, that's like a trump card, right? Well, you weren't at the transfiguration, you know, and so you pull that out, like, keeping that quiet. But as far as we know, they did. They didn't tell anyone about this until after Jesus rose from the dead. When you uh, look at Mark, he actually says that as they were coming down, they discussed what it meant like rising from the dead. The disciples were talking about what does that mean, rising from the dead? And like for you and I, like we know the end of the story and it can be like, really? Like he dies, rises from the dead. We could even read the story going six days ago. He just told you what was going to happen. Like, how is it you don't know? And maybe they're kind of afraid to ask. They're like, man, we don't want to look like we don't know what we're doing. Maybe they're afraid of the answer. What is it Jesus is going to say? Maybe they're rationalizing and trying to figure out some things that, well, maybe rising from the dead means he's going to regain popularity or he's going to avoid the death plots of the Jews or even the crowds at the bottom of the mountain. Like there, when we come down, they're going to go, wow, he's still alive. When, Mount, when Moses went up on the mountain and was there for so long, the people had thought maybe he had died. So maybe they're even putting that together. Maybe that's what Jesus means. But you and I, we know what it really meant. I will tell you, in this moment, I think we ought to give the disciples a little bit of a break. Here's why. Remember what they just saw. Like they just saw Jesus transfigured in the glory of God, and then he says that he's going to die. Like that's probably kind of hard for them to put those things together and understand that. But one day they will. One day it will all come together. And so now let's read the end of the story, verses 10 through 13. It says, the disciples asked him, why then do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. But I tell you, Elijah has already come. And they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So again, from Malachi 4 that we briefly mentioned last week, Elijah was going to come before the Messiah would come. And Jesus essentially says, John the Baptist is Elijah. And again, not in um, the physicality aspect, but he came and he preached repentance and people have heard the message and they then remember the ways of their fathers. And so at the end of this conversation, they realize that Jesus is talking about John the Baptist, that that's who Elijah is. And if you're kind of sitting there going, it kind of seems like a stretch, like John the Baptist is Elijah. I want you to listen to the words that Luke records for us when the angel comes and tells about John the Baptist's birth. He says this in Luke 1, 17, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people 
prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist has come. He represents Elijah. And then Jesus even points out that if the forerunner was rejected by the people, imagine how much more the Messiah will be rejected. And even though the disciples, they're still trying to figure it out, Jesus' identity is unfolding before their eyes, that he is the Messiah, that he is going to suffer, but he is greater than Moses and Elijah. One of the things that I read this week was talking about the transfiguration. It said all of this is kind of like his biography uh, in a nutshell. Like you hear the heavenly voice and there's echoes of his baptism. You see the prophets in front of Jesus and it's a reminder of the predictions of the coming Messiah. You see the three disciples who are alone, which reminds us of Gethsemane. You hear about the conversation of the upcoming death and you see him die for us. You see him transfigured, which reminds us of the resurrection. And even you see the cloud of which when Jesus ascends and, go back and goes back up into heaven, it says, until he is hidden by a cloud. I will tell you, we read about this transfiguration in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but there's one other place that it touches on it, and it's Peter. Peter, one of the guys who was up on the mountain, in his letter of 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16 through 18, he says this, For we did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that voice that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. What Peter says is the things that we're now telling you we're not making up. We have seen these things with our own eyes. It is true. He is true. So maybe, just maybe, as you kind of think about this event, it's more than just a story, but you understand just the implications of Jesus not just fully being in his human form, which is important for us. Like we celebrate that. He came down to earth. He's like us. He knows what that is. But in this moment, this is what he will be again in future. This is the glory that he holds. So even just walking through the text, kind of interpreting it, understanding what that means, usually then the next thing is kind of, well, what does that mean for us? What's the application? And I can tell you there's all sorts of things. Like maybe there's even something if you've been listening, the Holy Spirit's been stirring in you going, man, this is what this means for me or something that I can do. And so again, there's all sorts of things, but I only want to pick out three, three things that I kind of want to leave you with today that maybe again, God may use to encourage you, challenge you, convict you, help you as you walk along with him. Here's the first thing I would tell you this morning, is that Jesus is the fulfillment. Okay, Jesus is the fulfillment. You see Moses, you see Elijah, and Jesus comes to fulfill everything that they had spoken of. And so as you and I, we read scripture, I want you to know that it is true. And as you're reading it, you see that God has always had a plan, and he continues to have a plan. A plan. And you have seen it worked out up to this point. And if you're looking around, you see his plan continue to play out. And as we study, we gain knowledge. Knowledge that Jesus really is the Son of God. And knowledge that Jesus, just as he said, he died. He died for us. But he didn't stay dead. He then rose from the grave. The whole purpose of that was that you and I, we would not be separated he wants to be with us for eternity. 
And so as we learn about this fulfillment and this knowledge, it should lead to a belief and a following that we talked about last week. And hopefully, this knowledge becomes more than just knowing about Him. Hopefully, this knowledge of understanding who Jesus is turns into this idea of fully knowing Him. And that's why we do our, quote, disciplines. Not to check something off the list, but we read so that we understand even more of who He is or we hear the words that He wants us to hear or who we are and how He sees us. Maybe we pray to be able to talk with Him or even listen or that's part of why we journal or sit in silence or solitude is just to be able to be near Him. That's why we sing, to give Him praise for who He is. It's even why we come to church, not just to maybe feel good about ourselves, but God, I want to connect with you, with others, to not just do this by ourselves. All of these things continue to connect us with him so that we understand how much we are loved, that he cares for us. And as we grasp this fact that he is the fulfillment of everything that has come and will be, man, it changes our life. And so in this moment, we see that Jesus really is the fulfillment Here's the second thing I would tell you, is that we too are transformed by God. Like you and I, we are transformed by God. In this moment, Jesus was physically transformed, okay? But you and I, we are internally transformed. Like after we say yes to God, he works in our lives. It's a big word called sanctification. He continues to work in us. And in the Bible, there are four times that word metamorpho is used. Two of them in Matthew and Mark with the transfiguration. Here's the third time. In Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. God wants to change you by making your mind new. In fact, a little glimpse of the future, we're going to be doing a sermon series based off this verse about being transformed and renewed by um, his word and our mind being renewed by that. But this idea of transformation, like that helps you and I to live in the freedom that we were created to live in. Not in bondage of slavery, but understanding who he is. Man, you and I then get to live in freedom. The other time this word transformed or transfigured is used is in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. And it says, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. You see, God works on us to look more and more like him. And so even going back to that first kind of verse, my question is, are you giving him your mind and your thoughts? Are you putting truth in your mind so that he might be able to transform you into his image, because that's what his desire is, that you might be saved and you might walk with him and look more and more like him. Here's the final thing I would tell you from this text, that seeing a glorified Jesus, it helps us in our hard times. Seeing a glorified Jesus helps us and when times are tough. And I can imagine after the death and resurrection of Jesus, like all of this began to make sense for the disciples. Like in it, it didn't. But afterwards, they're like, ah. And I can only imagine Peter and James and John just going, do you remember what Jesus looked like up on the mountain? Do you remember him in all of his glory? And so in moments when they're preaching and there's opposition to the message, or there's moments that they're being persecuted, or even moments that they are investing in the church and there's all these fights within the church and going, what is going on here? They can remember 
who Jesus is and why they do what they do. I think about Paul sometimes go, how in the world was he able to do everything that he did? Like, how was he able to endure the things that he did? But if you remember, when he was on the road to Damascus, boy, he saw the glorified Jesus. And I bet that encourages you when things are not going the way that you'd like. And so I would tell you that a reminder of Jesus's glory helps us when we're discouraged, when we're going through suffering. Now, I'll tell you, most of the time, you know, we don't necessarily feel this. We can be pretty confident going, yeah, I know Jesus is Lord. I feel like I trust him. He's in control. But then life gets crazy. And that can look all sorts of different ways. But maybe you begin to go, are you still in control? Maybe that question of why is just in your mind and you really want it answered. Maybe your faith begins to be shaken. And I will tell you, in those moments of life, Satan is trying to take your eyes off of him And just look at the the circumstances that are going on. But I will tell you, in those moments, if you choose to see the glorified Jesus, you remind yourself of who wins. And if you've chosen him, if you are with him, if he is your Lord and Savior, that means you win too. And maybe even as I say that, this idea of maybe your faith is shaking, you're like, well, I've never really felt like, you know, even in the crazy, like my my life is shaken, like I've never doubted Jesus. Then what I would tell you is just keep your eyes focused on him then. Do that. Keep focused on him and let him be your foundation each and every day. What we're going to do is we're going to kind of close out the service by singing a really simple song, one from quite a few years ago, and it just talks about, I want to see Jesus. I get sometimes we romanticize that because when I look at text, like they see Jesus and they're down on the ground. Okay, it's like scary kind of stuff. But man, when you and I see Jesus for who he is, what a relief, what a help that is in our lives. And so that's part of this song. And it's even God help me to listen because if you and I want to be transformed, we have to listen to him. And so during this moment, as we sing these words, may you draw close to Jesus, simply wanting to see him and listen to him and love him. So will you guys stand as we sing this song? Open our eyes, Lord, we want to see Jesus, to reach out and touch Him, and say that we love Him. Open our ears, Lord, and help us to God, we do want to see you, and we know that you want to be with us, and so thank you for doing what it took, God, for coming down on this earth, for dying on the cross, 
for us to take all of our sins so that we might be seen as clean, as white, kind of like we're reading in the story. Father, help us as we continue to walk this week. Help those who are trying to decide, may we put our faith in you, may we walk side by side. God, help us just to continue to be transformed into the likeness of you. And in those moments that are struggles, help us to continue to focus on you and not circumstances until we get to be with you for eternity. God, we love you. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen.